Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. The United States aircraft carrier Hornet, part of a task force steaming into Japanese waters, is now revealed as the secret base from which American planes first bombed Tokyo. Here is that secret airfield. 16 B-25s, twin-motored Army bombers, lashed to the Hornet's flight deck, the dramatic saga of a combined Army-Navy mission that brought panic to Japan, Colonel Doolittle assembles his 80 volunteers before the flight. Not until this moment is their objective revealed. The heart of the island empire. Japanese medals awarded United States officers for humanitarian aid to the Japanese people are returned attached to 500-pound bombs. Now in heavy seas, some 800 miles off Japan, enemy patrol boats are sighted and sunk. Survivors are picked up and put aboard a cruiser. Fearing they have radioed Tokyo a warning, Doolittle decided to take off 10 hours ahead of schedule. Never before have big loaded bombers been launched in such numbers from a carrier at sea. One bomber after another soars from the flight deck, pointed for Japan. The sea grows rougher, the weather worse, but not one plane fails to get into the air. Taking the gale in its teeth, each bomber sets its course for carefully prearranged military objectives in Japan, a course that will put them over Tokyo at high noon in broad daylight. The Yokosuka naval base ablaze, arms plants, rail yards, and oil refineries smashed by the raiders in Tokyo, Yokohama, Kobe, and Osaka. Then journeys end for the great adventure. Fuel gone, 15 of the planes are wrecked as their crews are forced to bail out over China and Japanese-occupied territory. The Japanese government flatly admits that of eight uniformed flyers captured, some have been executed. This in flagrant violation of all international law. 64 of the 80 men who took off were rescued, and most of them have returned to duty. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast, and we just learned something tonight. I tried to start the show off with Jeff's commercial talking about what we're doing with the M-Block giveaway, and it was playing fine, but... I have never played a video before on this podcast, and everybody could hear Jeff and <laughs> Henry talking over it, so I had to dump out of it real quick. Luckily, I was listening to YouTube, so um, I will add that clip in later. But for those of you watching live, the whole thing was um, probably starting next month, because uh, we want to promote it a little bit. We're going to start our Patreon giveaways, and uh, one of the things we're going to be giving away is autographed N-Blocks to uh, randomly selected Patreon members. Uh, those are M1 Garand N-Blocks signed by... Henry, Jeff, and yours truly. Um, it doesn't matter what tier of Patreon you're signed up for, whether it's a dollar, three dollar, or seven fifty. And then probably the following month, we're going to be giving away a new "What's the Scuttlebutt" coffee mug, along with coffee that I just got in from our friends over at Warbird Coffee. We have the the uh, forty seven coffee and the fifty one coffee. And the P47 coffee is maxed out on horsepower and caffeine level, whereas the uh, 51 coffee is a level two horsepower. So if you enjoy coffee but maybe don't want to be uh, bouncing off the walls, the um, 51 coffee will be for you. But we will be promoting this here more in the future. Uh, but Jeff and Henry, how are you guys doing tonight? Yeah. yeah. Good. <laughs> I, I guess I need the P51 coffee, even though I would prefer the P47 coffee because the Thunderbolt is like one of my favorite airplanes, but I don't need to get that jacked. 
<laughs> it's weird. How- I, uh, Go ahead. I had the 47 coffee first, and uh, I haven't slept in a month. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny how, like, when I start my day and I drink a, a black coffee, I'm cool. Everything's good. I make it through the day, and then, like, around 3 o'clock, I'll hit one. And that one, same coffee, but that one seems to hit me a little more jittery. I don't know if because uh, I'm still riding a little bit off of the coffee from earlier in the morning or what, but... My afternoon coffee always makes me a little more jittery than my morning coffee. Not sure what's That's going on with that. Old, Look at old that. age. Yeah. Look Your blood's that. thinner. It absorbs the caffeine more. You know, Look at that. All that stuff. Henry, Henry Look knows. Look at that beautiful coffee oh, mug. I know only two. Well, I need a cup of damn coffee right now. I Apparently, it, it hits Henry a little harder, too, because he's he's lower to the ground being so, so damn short. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> How tall are you, Henry? Five eight. Yep, he's he's a short one. I'm not six five like you are. Yeah, I, I've always hated my height, like especially in high school. Everybody's all tall, dark, and handsome. In my experience, the chicks like the short, shorter dudes. But I don't know. I just being six five sucks because, like, when it comes to clothes, for example, you're a victim of the style, and I don't want to dress in modern day clothes. And so, I have to like go to outlet malls to find like a size thirty. Three thirty-four long pant that fits me in the waist. Otherwise, or like dress shirts, for example, find ones with sleeves long enough without getting them tailored. It was like, we'll just get a double extra large. Well, then it looks like a maternity shirt. It drapes off you. I need something long and skinny. So, I wish I was five eight, maybe a, a, a good six foot. But no, six five. It just. I see other people six five. I'm like, God, do I look that un, un, ungodly and gangly when I walk by? But apparently, I do. Wait, I got a buddy who's six foot seven. Oh. I do. And I'm like, man, I would kill to be your height. And he, he just, he's like, no, you wouldn't. It's a short man's Trust world me. where it's living in it. Have you ever? He said, I would rather be 5'8 than 6'7. Henry and Jeff, remember in the 80s and 90s when the home fashion was like to take a stucco and just blotch the ceiling so it looked like you had stalactites hanging off of it? When, when you're 6'5. <laughs> oh, five, you mean popcorn ceiling? No, popcorn looks like popcorn. These are the ones that like look like stalactites. I mean, it looked like somebody just took a paintbrush uh-huh. and went, <laughs> and like it was hanging down. I remember in high school, I took my shirt off and I drug my knuckles across the ceiling and bloodied them because I'm so damn tall. Actually, I need a new ceiling fan in my bedroom because I took my shirt off one day and put my hand into the blade at full speed and bent the arm. And I went to Home Depot and they don't sell replacement arms. So my, the, the fan above my bed's off kilter because I actually put my arm through it at full speed and bent the damn arm. <laughs> yep. Getting that first apartment that was built in the 90s. The shower head hits you right here in the chest because... <laughs> too damn tall it's just it's a short man's world i'm just living in it how, how did we go from just a, a great intro about the doolittle raid to don taking his clothes off how does that happen because you just never know where this show's going <laughs> how are you doing jeff <laughs> hey man it's the first night of the hockey playoffs yeah so it I'm is pretty good i mean my team doesn't play till tomorrow but i'm just <clears> pumped it's, i love this time of year man i mean down here in Texas, spring has fully sprung. Everything's green and flowered out, and, and everything's all different colors. We might actually get a little bit of rain, and and then it's and it's hockey, and it's just who's oh, your beautiful. team, Jeff? The Rangers. Okay, I I like I used to like Laurent. Well, I used to really be into hockey, and I liked the Rangers. I love their uniforms. Yeah, yeah, I've always been a always been a Rangers fan. Of course, growing up in Jersey, you know, I was really kind of the area I was in was more was more Flyers and. And devils. I was about uh, to say the the devils. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I, I was never a home team fan. I mean, I grew up loving the Rangers <clears> and the Dallas <throat> Cowboys, and and that was pretty much it. I didn't really care about anything else. 
and uh, I really don't care about the NFL much anymore like I used to when I was a kid. But oh, no, hockey no. has just always been – It's just so much more fun to watch. Heart. It really is. It's just men competing, and I just love the history of it. And the Rangers have such a great history, and, um, you know, they're not – they certainly haven't won a lot like some of the other original six teams have, but they've only won two actually Stanley Cups since 1940. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but uh, they were a hot team during World War II. For well, when I was is just- Lundqvist still the goalie? What's that? Is Hank Lundqvist still the goalie, or is he retired? Oh no, he retired. He's an analyst now. Yeah, I was gonna say he was yeah. about four years ago. See, when I worked in radio, we used to give away tickets to the local team, and so if we had some left, I'd go all the time. And then I start. I've been a Penguins fan since middle school because Columbus, Ohio. We didn't have a team until I left Ohio. Everybody's like, "Why aren't you a Blue Jackets fan?" It's like because they weren't around when I was here. I bolted in two thousand one, and so I was always a Penguins fan. So Carrie and I were really into it. That's why our, uh, Bailey's name's Bailey because Carrie's an LA Kings fan, and they're. Their mascot's name is Bailey. That's how our dog ended up that name. But my buddy John, who I used to go to local ECHL games with, he's a, a Flyers fan because he he was in New Jersey, but much like me at the time, you know, they didn't have a team really. And so he was a Flyers guy. Cause I think I was right around the time the Whalers went defunct and I don't think the Red Wing, the uh, Devils were out yet when he was growing up. And so he was a, a, a Philly fan, and so we'd go to these games. I'd have my Penguins jersey on. He'd have everybody's Flyers jersey. I'm just like, what the? You guys can't be sitting together, but we always <clears> did. <throat> I love hockey. First time I went to a pro game was up in Tampa. I went to a Lightning's game, and it's so much faster than than your obviously your ECHL teams, but it's it's a damn good time. So um, I don't want to complain about rain because Fort Lauderdale got their ass kicked as we saw a few days ago, but on the west coast where i'm at we're in a drought we finally got some rain last night and i just got my roof redone and there was a construction dumpster in my driveway and so my truck's parked out in the front yard where the make-believe culvert is which tends to flood so i got up this morning it was pouring down rain so i put on my service boots and put on this hat and my hbt jacket and went out in the rain and just went to work and my boss looked at me he's like you got an event coming up i was like no nah, it was raining this morning i didn't want my feet wet and it's you know he got this gear why not wear it I mean, that's the best time when the weather gets a little cooler or the little rainier. We can actually wear some of our gear without having to go to an event and not look so out of place. Like when you whip out that beautiful all-leather M42 jacket and get on your Triumph <laughs> right down the street. <laughs> that's the perfect jacket. Like if you had an old Triumph or an Indian, that would be the perfect jacket for that bike. Yeah. I wish I had an old Indian. I just never got into motorcycles much. My dad was always on motorcycles and I love the old the old, you know, classic bikes, you know, the Indians and the Harleys from the yeah, from the World War Two era mm-hmm. even. That'd be great. But I you know, if I bought one I wouldn't it'd be a waste for somebody like me. I just I don't know, it just kinda skipped me. Um but uh I am looking at there's a I saw there's a nineteen forty seven. It's a it's a pickup with a flatbed on it i mean it's cherry nice and uh it's down the road here i know i know the owner and all of a sudden yesterday i saw for sale sign i went hmm hmm but uh, we'll see looking around the backyard do i have any room to park at (laughs) i've got a tree to put it yeah i i just bought i just bought my son a a 2000 gmc the other day step side nice pickup and uh so now i'm up to six uh (sighs) but I can probably skim one if, for that 47. That's a nice truck. Yeah. You sure. sounds like, ah, too bad. You didn't wait two weeks. <laughs> but anyhow, 
Um, before we get into the Doolittle, because we didn't want to bring an entire conversation to a screeching halt, we're going to start things up a little different. We're going to get down to mail call, and we want to hear from each and every one of you. So if you have any topics, uh, questions, comments, concerns, uh, dislike of my spinning a show off topic in weird ways, please send us an email at mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Tell me to get my shit together, and I'll happily listen. But uh, for this week, Jeff has two fantastic, well-written, in-depth emails. And so, Jeff, take it away. All right. This first one reads, I just recently discovered your podcast when searching for articles written by E.B. Sledge and his son, Henry. I am very excited to begin listening to the podcast. I do have one question. When are the live on-air broadcasts? I'm an amateur World War II PTO historian. I began back when I was in junior high school after reading a book about Guadalcanal and the 1st Marine Division. Please forgive me, but I have long since forgotten both the title and author. Over the years, life intervened, and it has only been within the last few years my passion for World War II PTO rekindled and my reading and studying grew. I began purchasing a variety of books on the subject, some good, some bad. I read With the Old Breed, and it was fantastic. I eye-opening, and you get a very real sense of what the average combat infantryman went through. When the miniseries The Pacific came out, I refused to see it. I figured Hollywood would take my passion and destroy it with their artistic license. I broke down and finally watched the miniseries. I was pleasantly surprised. They did take some artistic licenses, liberties, but overall I was pleased. It has since become one of my all-time favorite series. Henry, I understand that you are working on a book that includes portions of your father's original manuscript plus family recollections. I'm very excited to be one of the first individuals to purchase a copy as soon as it becomes available. I treasure each memoir of those World War II PTO veterans as they have now all but passed and we can no longer listen to their stories. I look forward to continuing listening to the podcast and learning even more about PTO. Sincerely, Donna Eichhoff, Palmer, Alaska. The next one starts off with, it's me again. Listening to the conversations about the Pacific, I also felt partially let down when watching the Pacific the first time. I was expecting something different, more like Band of Brothers also. Since the first time watching, I've grown to love it. Band of Brothers, I felt, was the super patriotic, glorious side of war portrayal. To where the Pacific is more raw and in your face. War can bring out the worst of people as well as the best, and it shows that. I find myself re-watching the show often. I read a lot, so when I read books like Guadalcanal by Richard Frank or Ian Toll's trilogy, you learn more about the actual battles. So when you re-watch the show, you understand the context of what is going on outside of just the shooting on screen. And personally, I feel you gain a better appreciation of what the show conveys and the broader scope of what their situations were. Looking forward to Masters of the Air, would love a miniseries on the Navy. The naval battles of Guadalcanal, Okinawa, Leyte Gulf, Pearl Harbor would be quite interesting. Halsey, Nimitz, King, Spruance, these guys would make for excellent TV. DJ. Give Henry a few seconds if he wants to uh, comment on either one of those two mails. Since oh, man, those are two beautifully written emails. That That's, well, <clears throat> I mean, they're. I don't want to pick one over the other. Obviously, the first one speaks to me a little bit more because I can't. You said Jeff. Her name was Donna. Yeah. Okay. Donna. Yeah. Um, Which, yeah. By the I way, mean, that's 
let us point out real quick that we have gotten some fantastic mail from our female listeners. So, and the fact that they're making themselves known, I love the fact that love we're we're uh, we're appealing to both sides of the audience. So that's fantastic. She, so keep she coming. inspired me. Thank you for reading that, Jeff. I mean, because yeah, I won't go into it, but what we talked about before we went on, I mean that that's just like God. Thank you. Somebody's paying attention. This is I feel like I'm doing something worthwhile, but. But to, to move on to a broader scope, I mean, uh, I love that folks are seeing the Pacific. I love that people are looking forward to Masters of the Air, I mean, and, and catching our show. I mean, it's it's all good. With Masters of the Air taking as long as it has to go from pre-production to production to post-production to release, are we running out of time for Tom Hanks and Spielberg to do a Navy series? <laughs> Because I mean, it's taking quite a bit of time, and they're not getting any younger themselves. I mean, yeah. Obviously, you can direct. Uh, Eastwood has shown us you can write and direct well into your your golden years. But with that yeah. being said, are we getting close to running out of time for at least that production crew to do something? That's a good. That is an interesting question. Um, I I know you know Leighton and I talked when we were coming home from the twentieth symposium of Band of Brothers. John Orloff was there and he's one of the main screenwriters for masters of the air. Um, and Leighton was just kind of giving me some, some scoop on things he had heard. I, I, but to stick to your question, Don, I don't know, Jeff, do you have any input on that? Or hypothesis uh, for that matter. I mean, it's I all mean, speculation. Yeah, my very uneducated guess is as long as Hanks has blood flowing through his veins, he's going to make good cinema. No. I, I don't know. Now, I think a better question is, is it already too late to garner enough interest to where Masters of the Air will be as successful as the other two? I, I That's really the one that scares me because, Here's- I mean, had this come out 20 years ago, oh, my gosh. Right. I mean, just just swap the timetable had this come out and not Band of Brothers. And we were still Mm -hmm. kind of on the heels of the Memphis Bell and Tuskegee Airmen and then just kind of yearning for more of a bigger picture. Um, I, I, you know, I I think Band of Brothers was just a perfect time. We were just we had that. Yeah. And And there were so many veterans still here. Yes, exactly. And we were writing the, the, the coattails from, from Saving Private Ryan still. Everybody still kind of wanted more, and, and Band of Brothers gave us more. Um, I think the Pacific is just, you know, we've talked about this a thousand times. It's just different. It's a different type of war. It's, a, it's definitely a more overshadowed part of the war. So even, you know, it could be the best thing ever, but it has to tell it the way it was or close to it. And that's not mm-hmm. what we are used to seeing, right? I mean, we grew up watching Hogan's Heroes, okay? You know, they make jokes and they, they treat their POWs great. Not so much in the Pacific Theater. So, And we'll talk a little more about that, I'm sure, once we get into Doolittle tonight. But I hope that this is not already – Masters of the Air is not already too late. I, I don't know going yeah. forward for from a naval perspective. It'd be great, but – I just, man, I hope this thing doesn't flop because I'm I, just so pumped. I know I can say this, and this is, you know, our buddy Leighton was kind of giving me some some scoop on this. I mean, he had heard John Orloff say this that we heard the criticism of the Pacific. All right, we've like you said, we've talked about that many times. Masters is going to 
it faces a challenge because you talk about, well, the Pacific didn't focus on one unit. Well, they couldn't. We've talked about that. But Masters, think about it. Every B-17 had 10 guys in it. And so it's the number of characters that it's going to have to develop. It, it's, I mean, Layton told me a direct quote from Orloff on that, and I really hesitate to repeat that. But then again, he didn't swear him to secrecy either. But it, it's, it faces some challenges. I'll just say that. That doesn't mean they won't pull it off. That doesn't mean that anybody's saying they can't pull it off. Yeah. But back to the previous question, I almost wish they would have like staggered production. Like, okay, we have a two, three year gap between the Pacific and this one. Um, cause kind of like you, which would be a tremendous undertaking, but just time wise, cause like Jeff was kind of saying, um, has the broad, uh, pop culture interest in the subject still there to support a project of that caliber. I mean, we know our communities here, we know, you know, some of the younger cats, but we also know when it comes to sinking that sort of money and that sort of production, the um, people who invested that money, they're looking for more viewers than just our community and, you know, a handful mm -hmm. of kids who played on, on X, you know, video games on Xbox. And so that'll be the big question too, is, is the audience out there? And kind of like we spoke a few weeks ago, Back when Band of Brothers and even the Pacific, you know, the Pacific saw a little bit of the streaming services popping up around it. But back in the day, you know, Band of Brothers was on HBO. You either had HBO, Cinemax, or Showtime. Yeah. But either way, or and even if you had DirecTV, you still had internet. You know, you still had HBO and then maybe Showtime. So regardless, unless you didn't have a cable or satellite system, chances are you either had HBO or you went out and got it. But now, um. The uh, Tom Hanks Navy, uh, what was it, Gray something or other? Um, the Greyhound. Oh. Greyhound. Yeah, Greyhound. Yeah. Never saw because it, it was on Disney Plus. Didn't have that. I have it now, so now I can go back and watch it. But I think, I think by putting it on a streaming service, it also isolates a good portion of the audience for potential. And it makes it t tougher to track the metrics too, as far as how many people are. You've. <laughs> Actually, I would think streaming would be easier because they can actually see downloads versus, you know, back in the day, they couldn't see, Comcast couldn't say, hey, you know, X amount of people turn on their cable boxes and watch because I think at that point, I don't think that was even illegal to, legal to do. They had to rely on Nelson ratings where they made random phone calls. But when it comes to streaming, they can see how many people actually stream and download a video just like we can see how many people watch our videos on YouTube and stream the podcast. So I would think that would be the one benefit of streaming is you can actually get yeah, real hard numbers true. on, you know, yeah, X amount of people tuned in, X amount of people shut it off after 45 minutes or X amount of people stuck through the whole series or, you know, the first five episodes and then it dropped off. I'm sure they can actually get more in-depth detail when it comes to that sort of thing opposed to back when it was streaming strictly on uh, HBO services. But I'm excited for it to come out. We've all been waiting forever and, um, but it's almost like they'd almost have to do the Navy to finish off. You know, we already had the, you know, Band of Brothers, PTO. Obviously, you can say, well, what about the, you know, ground infantry for the Army? But, you know, there's a lot of movies covered that. Um, Dennis Blocker tuned in. He said they should do the heart of hell for the Navy and follow the crew home. I'm sorry, follow the crew home front through the invasion of Saipan, Guam, Tinian, and Iwo Jima. 
This would include the UDT frogmen doing their recon mission. So that's his suggestion for the fourth uh, layout of those series. And so there's that as well. And once again, we do want to hear from you. So send us an email to mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And if you also want to support the show, you can do that by going to WTSP or D-410.com. As we said earlier, please sign up for Patreon. All you got to do is sign up and you'll automatically be enrolled into winning uh, autographed M blocks when we get the coffee mug and doing the um, coffee giveaways. And we're going to continue doing that. This isn't something that's just going to be a limited time. Obviously, the items we give away are going to be limited time, but... We want to continue thanking you guys for supporting us and what we do by doing prize packs through Patreon. Just a little thank you for you guys for uh, signing up. But without any further ado, Jeff, you want to start us off on the uh, topic of Sir Jimmy Doolittle? I guess he's not European, so he wouldn't be Sir. He's not a British knight, but yeah, Mr. Jimmy Doolittle. <laughs> well, to every enlisted man, it was going to be Sir. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true. Officer. Sir, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, and talking about our, our little pre-show plans tonight, you know, we thought it was fitting with the anniversary on the 18th of April, the Doolittle Raid, 1942. And I, I think um, my favorite my favorite things about the story is um, a, a little bit deeper than what the, you know, general, what we see on the surface, right? What we see is 16 B-25s launching off the carrier Hornet. Um, and, you know, the story goes... Okay, they did negligible damage, um, and of course we lost some guys in the process. But uh, it was that psychological victory, right? Hearts and minds. Um, so right. So that's that, that's kind of the Doolittle Raid in a nutshell, right? We just wanted to strike back after Pearl. But when I look at it logistically, from a training perspective, just a personnel perspective, for this thing to be pulled off four months after Pearl that just kind of that really blows my mind because even even as far back as when you know Chief of the Air Corps Hap Arnold decides to um, kind of task Jimmy Doolittle with this particular mission um, I think Doolittle was um, notified on the 17th of January okay so we're looking at 30 some days after Pearl right 40 days maybe okay this that's a fairly quick turnaround from all all of a sudden we're caught you know at pearl to in the period of maybe five weeks going we not only know what we're going to do we know who's going to lead the charge i mean in military terms that's pretty quick and then three months later he's taking off you know <laughs> off the hornet 600 miles from the coast of japan like that to me, that part of the story, I think, is what's really interesting to kind of have this concept of yes, well, we know twin engine bombers can't land on a carrier, but they can certainly take off from one. If they're like, uh, okay, how the heck do we do that? How do we train? Right. Yeah. So weight was a big factor. And I think they started training there in Florida. Yeah. Uh, Don, you may they uh, did. be able to Down near Eglin. Eglin. Yeah. Eglin Field. Yeah. So, um, and then over to California. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's these aircraft being loaded onto the Hornet that the Hornet skipper, you know, Mitcher, didn't even know, didn't really know what this mission was. Even him himself was was kind of kept in the dark. So to think about the secrecy of it, and, and I want to say that these guys, these, these flyers, you know, there were 16 aircraft 
and with a with a crew of five. So there's there's eighty individuals, right? Eighty quote unquote do little raiders. Um and I think they were picked from at least I think two or three different bomb groups. You know, it wasn't just like all of a sudden Doolittle had these guys, right? Yeah. Like he, he didn't have these to begin with. It wasn't like, okay, we need the 91st bomb group to bomb the No, no, no. Like these guys came from all over. Um, and especially in an aircraft as dynamic as the B-25, I mean, probably one of the most um, uh, had the most modifications of American aircraft during World War II. We probably don't realize that. Um, but yes, we realized the P-51 had some modifications. and But this is like the Spitfire, right? You know, there was the mark everything of the Spitfire. And the 25 was was really no exception. I mean, 25 was, like I said, was the, the amount of modifications that aircraft went through. And the neat thing, too, and, and I'll open this up to Henry, but uh, I think maybe a little bit of the irony is to have that aircraft specifically named after Billy Mitchell, you know, the guy that was shunned. It's a shame he didn't live long enough to see, you know, the really the fruits of his labor. But in July of, I want to say it was 1921, when he, um, you know, when they sunk the, the German battleship, the Austrisland, um, proving that air power um, could take down a mighty battleship, which at that time, you know, the, the battleships were the darling of the Navy. Right. I mean, even in 1941, with the amount of battleships that we that, that you know, were hit at Pearl. Um, and of course, the big topic there is, oh, the aircraft carriers were out at sea and training, you know, and the Japanese like, who cares? Like we took their battleships because they were they were the darling of the Navy. But it really wasn't until 1942 that the complexion of the darling of the Navy shifting from those dreadnoughts to the flat tops. That's really when that thing happened. And you know, never really look back. So um, to have somebody, you know, to have an aircraft named after somebody who was trying to prove this in the twenties um, to, to have his namesake on an aircraft and have somebody like Doolittle, um, you know, yeah, he was, he was um, ambitious and he was brave and you know, he was seasoned, right? Uh, Doolittle's in his mid forties at the time of, of the raid, but, you know, also held a doctorate in aeronautical engineering from MIT. Yeah, he was a brilliant man. Yeah, not just like a daring leader. Yeah, he's a daring leader, but the guy really knew what he was doing. I mean, the guy basically invented um, flying by instrumentation yeah. only. Flying yeah. blind. I was going to say that knowledge and that uh, background definitely came in handy in this mission when it came to, okay, we need to get these birds off this plane with a short runway, and we need to cut weight. What can we cut? What can't we cut? And uh, how are we going to get there? Definitely helps right. to have the guy in charge have the knowledge in the background. Absolutely, yeah. So that's that's just my kind of short and skinny of it. I mean, people can can really. We don't think we have to go through the nitty gritty details, but I just think that's the neat thing to me of this story is how quickly we did strike back, regardless of of what we hit or not. Uh, having American bombers over over the emperor, you know, of Japan. Um, rattled a, f a few a few people there, and not even having to do that again, the thought that it was done and can be done, you know, that was constantly, you know, present day. You're 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 the Empire of Japan, present day, 1942, 1943, even 44. 
this could happen again at any day. Um, just having that thought in the back of their minds too has got to uh, have a uh, basically it's got to change how they were waging war to know that that threat is there again at any given time. And not to mention the fact that prior to this, um, we had never done anything like this on. No one had done any sort of thing on this over the con, you know, Japan. And to have our guys say, okay, here's what we're doing. And oh, by the way, it's a quote unquote suicide mission. We're going out, but there's not going to be fuel to get back. We're dropping the bombs. And if you're lucky, you'll land in China. And once you're in China, you'll be lucky if you don't get captured by Japanese soldiers who are there. So, um, who wants to do this? And you still had guys with the intestinal fortitude to say, let's, let's do this. Let's get the job done. That in and of itself is what makes this mission even more notable to history. I mean, yes, there's that in pretty much every mission, you know, especially infantry, there's a high likelihood that, you know, some of the guys around you aren't coming back, but to actually know from, from jump, Hey, we're not, there is no return trip home, at least not anytime soon. That in itself is just like, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, um, I'll share a quick story with, uh, one, uh, one of the times I got to talk to the last surviving Raider, of course, Dick Cole, who was, you know, the co-pilot for, for Doolittle. Um, I, I asked him, I said, sir, I said, uh, you know, if we could go back in time to, to the morning of April 18th, 1942. And if somebody said, um, you know, that if somebody can't, you know, told you, you're going to live to see the age of 103. You know, he said, ah, he said, I wouldn't have believed him one bit. He said, I just wanted to get to April 19th, 1942. <laughs> and he said, you know, that was, he said it was the best day and it was the worst day that he ever experienced, you know, in the military. And of course, you know why it was the worst day. He said, yeah, I said, you know, I had to basically, you're, you're at uh, something like 9,000 feet deciding if you're, you're going to have to jump out of this aircraft um and uh you know when that decision is made you gotta bail out yeah that's yeah that would be the worst day of course and and i said so well why was it the best day for you of the war he said because my parachute opened <laughs> it's all about perspective <laughs> we tried to have a guest on tonight um a return guest he's been on twice in the early days of this podcast named ted johnson he's a member of the Florida Flyboys. He's been a reenactor for 20 years, but he was actually at the last Doolittle um, reunion, and some of our friends had gone to a few of them prior to that, and I was wanting him to come on tonight and share his experience at that last reunion, but sadly, due to technical difficulties, he was unable to join us, but I've talked to a few of those guys um, in that group who were invited to go down in there to you know, be the visual representation of what those guys would have looked like back when they made those... <coughs> those um that flight and that mission and i could only imagine the honor that you would have to just be in that room in those uniforms just stand not saying anything just being that visual representation for the people in the audience to kind of look at them and look at you and look at them and just get the whole idea of the uniforms the gear and all that and um so sadly ted wasn't able to come on to share that but I, that would have been one of the coolest things i think as a reenactor, you could have ever had the opportunity to do. That would have just been so, so awesome. So, I mean, that's why we do it, right? Yeah. That's, that's it right there. I mean, you know, congratulations to Ted. Uh, yeah. I would have loved to talk to him tonight because that's exactly why we do what we do. Let me ask you guys from a, 
a flight standpoint because you guys are more familiar with the the actual planes and the models when it came obviously they chose the the mitchell because of its ability to possibly take off from these carriers but when it comes to a mission where you knew you're going to have to jump out of a plane or crash land it when you run out of fuel was the Mitchell one of the more easier ones to bail out of, or was it up there in the scale of crap? <laughs> this is going to be more harder, you know, because we all know by watching the movies, a lot of those planes, they weren't, you know, they're kind of getting through them was almost like getting out of a submarine for a lot of these guys. I mean, you you know, depending on where you were stationed at on this plane, getting to an escape hatch wasn't exactly the most easy thing to do. So when I know came, if I could jump in on yeah, that, please. The, so, for example, the Lancaster, the British Lancaster, was horrendously difficult to get out of because the main wing spar came through the fuselage. Oh. Which, so I've read memoirs and read histories of guys with all their flying gear having to crawl up over that spar to get to the rear of the aircraft. Um, now, of course, it made the Lancaster able to carry a huge amount of bombs. But to stick to your question, I, I, you know, the B-25 probably wasn't, inordinately difficult to get out of. I mean, the thing that goes through my mind and I'm thinking of one movie, I guess it was, we may have already talked about it on, on one of our earlier shows. I think Van Johnson was in it. It was about the do little raid. Uh, Jerry seconds over Tokyo. Yes. That was it. Yeah. I just remember a scene, you know, reaching back to my childhood when I remember watching that movie with my brother, I wouldn't have the guts to jump out of a plane on a clear, sunny day, Yeah, you know, over, friendly territory i can't imagine it's dark stormy you know you're you, i mean you see your props starting to windmill because you're running out of fuel and just open that hatch and go through the, i think they opened up and went through the nose is or out just after the nose i'm not sure but dark stormy night possible enemy territory or at best china you have no idea what you're going into you know the the fortitude and courage is is just unbelievable and oh, by the way, they weren't static line jumping either. So, you know, you yeah. got to take that into consideration too. Yeah. And I would imagine um, a lot of them, or some of them at least, would have just gone at the Bombay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That I makes mean, sense. It's, that's, I mean, I'm not, as, I'm not as familiar with the 25 as I am with the 17. And I know in an emergency situation, a, a, when a bailout drill goes out, yeah, B seventeen crewmen have a specific. They have a fire drill, essentially. You know, they yeah. everybody goes in a certain order, and it's done for a reason. And they have different places that they would exit the uh, the aircraft. But I would think when you're kind of like you're not shot up, and the plane's going to blow up any second, you 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 know you're just kind of riding the time out. It seems to me that I would be fighting to just say, "Hey, all right, open the bomb bay, and we'll just tumble out," kind of thing. Uh, but I don't know. Wow. The best book I've ever read on it was Jam our buddy James Scott, his book Target Tokyo, and I, he went into some of that. But it's been like a year since I read the book, I'll so have to pick that one up. Writing that one down. Jeff is currently going through his bookshelf. I have a feeling he's going to produce the book Target Tokyo. Nope. Oh, maybe. Oh. I I would there? imagine some of it's in this book here. <laughs> Jimmy Doolittle, um, if I could never. I could never be so lucky again. Yes, Jimmy Doolittle's um, autobiography. I I'll let you know when I get That's around to reading this thing. <laughs> <laughs> What is that, like a, a number three font? 
yeah. uh, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty healthy book here. Um, but no, yeah, it's actually the the, the words are, are quite quite large, and there's a, there's a good amount of photographs. But it's just just kind of printed as a very large book. Um, I'd love to get into this one day because you know Doolittle himself. I mean, autobiography of of that man. I bet you that's a great read. Couldn't recommend it because I haven't read it, but. Uh, if anybody, if any of our listeners have ever read um, Jimmy Doolittle's autobiography, I could never be so lucky again. Man, I'd love to hear about it for sure. Absolutely. Do we want to go ahead since we kind of segued into books? Do we want to go down uh, what you're reading? Sure. I'm going to change up a little bit. Henry, what you reading? Just finished the book I was reading by Michael Veach on Battle of the Bismarck Sea which had some great stuff about B-25s being modified. Um, I am now reading Ian Toll's third volume, Fall Out of the Gods, third volume of the Ian Toll trilogy, and only about 70 pages into it, what's, but really enjoying it. What's the overall um, plot point or area? Well, this is covering? War in the Western Pacific, 1944 to 1945. And I think, because I did look in the index, as I've been known to do through the years. I, I think he does quote my dad in a few places once he gets, you know, on, on the pillow. But right now it's setting a lot of the political stage with where FDR kind of stood with things. And Cole's a great writer. I mean, God, it's it's so readable and yet so articulately written. Um, yeah, really enjoying it. That's one of the things you definitely pick up on when you read through as many books as we do, as consistently as we do. You know, you can definitely tell the the smooth books, the ones you don't want to put down. To then you go to one like, okay, I'm halfway through chapter one, and I'm take a little extra energy to pick this one back up. So I mean, we definitely you can definitely tell the writing styles, and you definitely figure out what writing styles you personally enjoy that helps you keep going through those books quicker and or slower. And so that's one of the interesting things about, you know, reading these books is like finding, okay, I like this author. I like the way he does it. This guy, not so much. Uh, this historical stuff is good, but takes me a little bit longer. Well, well, I guess they're all historical, but what I mean, logistical stuff, as we've talked about before, I'm more of a biography guy, autobiography versus just hard numbers and, lo mm -hmm. and logistic stuff. Jeff, what you reading? Well, I can I can definitely attest to a book that I'm reading slower, not because of uh, that it's it's boring in any way, because it is quite the opposite. But a lot of our listeners know I've been reading with the old breed for the second time, and I will probably finish it tonight. And I don't want to. I don't want to be done with it. I've really been trying to pump the brakes on it. Um, but I think I'm going to move into. Um, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm gearing up for Europe. So I have to look ahead to like, okay, what book do I want to be reading when I'm there? And that's important to me because I can pick up a book off the shelf, even if something I, you know, I read 10 or 15 years ago and I know where I was at reading it. It has to fit, right. Yeah. You know, uh, just weird like that. It, so sometimes that subject matter when I'm looking ahead, okay, what do I want to get into? Um, it, it definitely is going to depend on my, on my surroundings and, I thought um, I'm, I'm definitely going to take this one to Europe with me. And if, if you if you uh, you know if y'all follow me on on Instagram, you already saw that I that I ordered this. But I got Men at War uh, by Ernest Hemingway. I got a first edition. I found it. I can't believe it. Um, printed in in 1942, 
And this is significant, and it actually has a tie with uh, with the old breed, or for those folks who have maybe only seen the Pacific miniseries. But that's the book that um, was thrown away in a trash can. That you know, as as the story goes, um, Henry's father, curious, walks up to this trash can on Pavuvu and picks up this book. It should have looked exactly like this, uh, being a first edition. And uh, opens it and uh, signed by the previous owner of the book, A.A. Haldane, and um, goes and just leaves it in the trash can for whatever reason. With the disgust of losing somebody he was so close to, one of the you know best leaders that he knew, um, or for whatever reason, just didn't want any part of that. So I've been kind of moved by that scene uh of course me being a huge Hemingway fan um I knew eventually I was gonna I was gonna own that book but that's not the kind of to me that's not the kind of book that you just buy a new one paperback you know I, I had to find a first edition and I'm I'm proud to have that one so that may be I may kind of just pilfer through because if you've never if you're not familiar with that book Men at War is not written necessarily by Hemingway this is a collection that Hemingway put together of a lot of authors that wrote just strictly about war and men at war. So he does the, uh, the introduction for it, but there are, there are stories in here. Uh, you know, they've read badge of courage, Stephen Crane, right? There's stuff from Julius Caesar, uh, you know, all over the place, Teddy Roosevelt, um, Xenophon. So this is just kind of a culmination of, of men at war, all war. So, um, it's always good to broaden our horizons. So, Looking I think it's forward to kind of diving into it. I think it's kind of cool that you didn't hesitate or even put a second thought of saying, okay, I'm going to take this first edition I just got and schlep it on a plane with me and my baggage and my carry on across the world via, you know, a modern day bus that flies because it's not like air travel is what it once was. It's just, you know, I'll cram it in the back of the seat in front of me and put up my, pull my tray table down while I enjoy my, my sub and then I'll get back to it. Because a lot of people, you know, if they're a Hemingway fan or whatever, and they get a first edition from 1942, regardless of what it is, they might be a little more delicate with it and put it up on the shelf and not want to touch it. But you're like, come on, come on, Ernie, we're going, we're going on a flight. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's just how I am. I mean, I have no intention of deliberately damaging this book in any way. I like to be easy on my books. But at the same time, I don't, you know, I don't want to buy a wall hanger when it comes so far, right? Books um, are meant to be read. So I sure as heck, I'm not going to buy a book. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's um, that's how it should be. You know, they, they say that the you know libraries should never be too clean or too dusty. You know, just the right amount of in between of mm. people coming in and, and reading books. So, and they always they just got to have just enough of that that book binder smell. So right. I am I, I am. On the back half of uh, I'm staying with the boys, the biography of John Bazalone. What's up, dog? You just ran in here like the police. Um, I'm re- right around the time where he just finished up the war bond tour. You know, they covered a little bit of the Pacific, and I don't know. I, I can't remember if they actually talked about exactly how much money he raised on that tour, but it's a staggering amount to think like in 1943 money. It's something like 
five billion with a B. Good God, they raised a tremendous. I like. I think their their goal was like fifteen million or something, and they raised like between one and five billion with a B on that tour where they were traveling around doing their uh, war bond tour with the uh, the actresses and the comedians and stuff. And so, the amount of money that he was able to raise, and it's interesting how he kind of went from being felt like he was kind of the the monkey with the spotlight on him like i you know he he talks about early in the book how as a student um you know he had a hard time speaking in front of class he didn't wasn't very good at presentation and now he found himself where he had to get up in front of these large groups of people and he he, he he's a little bit resentful at the beginning but actually after he realized the amount of money they were raising and the amount of you know things that they could buy for the the guys on the front line he he finally realized the whole, holy hell I am I'm making a difference here and his opinion definitely changed by the end of that tour which is interesting to see and I'm um, um, just got to the part where he uh, finally got his wish and because uh, he tried for God six to eight you know in, in the series they made it look like oh he just went to chess he said hey uh, put me put me in coach I want to I want to train but no it took a lot of talking and and getting to the right people because. They kind of saw him as a cash cow. Like, there's no way in hell we're sending this guy back. I mean, look at the amount of money he helps us raise. Why would we send him back anywhere? And finally, he, he talked to the right Marine and who felt the same way and got him sent to Pendleton to do some training. And so that's right where I'm at on the book before they they set off. But it's definitely an interesting book. And I said it before, the hardest part for me, and I'm sure a lot of people, is the fact that we know what happened to him and that this book is not – It's even though it's told in the first person, it's not written in the first person. I'm sure there's a lot of letters and stuff lifted and information, but it's, I'm enjoying it. It's, it's a pretty good read and you definitely learn a lot more about at least the author and the family's um, perception of how he felt about things and, and the way things went in his personal life. And it's, it's a pretty good read. I know uh, Jeff's a big fan of that book. And if you guys are curious about Baz Lone and, Maybe you've seen a little bit from in the Pacific or some newsreels and just heard the name and you want a little bit more um, deeper look into his family life and uh, growing up in Jersey and and his his time in the Army where he pretty much spent more time beating up other cats in the Army in the, in the boxing ring than he than he did anything else. Um, and you really want to you know learn where the name Manila John Bazalone came from, definitely check out that book. I'm staying with the boys, the um, official biography of the John Bazalone. That's what I have been reading, and I'm just about done with that. And I, I don't know where I'm going to go next. I'm looking at my bookshelf, and I just I'm not sure where I'm going to go next. And that's one of the other fun questions when you you wrap up a book and you're like, okay, well we're in the Pacific. Do we want to get a European theater? Do I want to get back to these submarine books? And so I'm not quite sure where I want to go next. And um, maybe if you guys have a suggestion where we should go next, we're always telling you about the books <laughs> we're reading and what we think you should read. Um, as per earlier, send us an email at that same email address, mail called WTSP World War II. That's WWII.com. And uh, tell us what you're reading. And uh, give us some suggestions on some books to check out. And uh, maybe we'll happily do so. And we are working on having uh, two authors, one of them uh, returning, who just did a world trip. Jared's going to come back on. And then I'm working on uh, another author who's going to be coming on shortly after that. And so we definitely have some uh, more guests coming down the line. Uh, Henry, do you get anything coming down the line? Um, no. I, you want me to plug what we had talked about earlier? Sure. Talk about whatever you want. 
I just uh, well, don't know. I'll just make yeah, I'll make it brief. So in this, I hope our our uh, Donna, who sent us that lovely email, is listening. So I have finished the rough draft to the book that I've been working on. Um, now I'm going back through and self-editing and trying to pare it down and eliminate the things I don't want. But the the original unedited manuscript with the old read, here is how big it actually was. So everything out of that that I analyzed and decided I wanted my manuscript, I've got it transcribed over, I've roughed in my own voice. So now I'm going back through making the second pass. And was emailing with John McManus saying, hey, it's 173,000 words. Where do I need to get it? He said, shoot for 130 to 145. That's just a rough, a rough target that I'm going to try to get to and then go back and polish it some more. You know, it's it's a, a slow process, but, but well, it is moving forward. You're kind of getting a view of what your father and your mother went through. They had a whole lot yeah. more letters and more words than the uh, publishers wanted to print. Yep. Henceforth, what you have available to you now. And now that, yeah. you, you kind of got a nice insight into, as we kind of talked a few weeks ago, about being a father, raising a family, trying to work a full-time gig, plus right on the side. And, and so you're kind of getting an aspect yeah. of what your father went through with that as well. And um, it's, probably, For sure. it's probably kind of cool to uh, kind of share in that sort of, family uh career if you will or family well it is i just feel the pressure that i don't want to screw it up sure I'm, and as we can all expect and we're all got faith in you but you know it's it's kind of got to be kind of cool to to be able to share those thoughts of not only him but your mother as well because as we all know oh, she's yeah. the one who who did the banging out of the keys and at night yeah. and along with him and, and it was definitely a family affair and and now you're kind of sharing that legacy in more than one way, really. Because now your your kid gets to experience what it's like to have his father down in the basement banging away at a keyboard all night, and just it just keeps going and going. Well, the exciting thing, and, and you know, we don't have to keep talking about this, but the exciting thing for me is the unpublished stuff, the nuggets in there that are pretty cool, to see those, to get those into the light of day. That, that's that's what, really, this isn't about me. It's it's That's really the main drive of this. Yeah. And that's what we're all excited for. I mean, this is, this would be like, you know, someone who's a diehard fan of like the Godfather find out, oh, wait a minute, we're going to get to look at some unreleased parts of the script that never came out or things like mm -hmm. that. So if you're, a you know, with the old breed fan or the Pacific fan and you're, ooh, there's more content out there that we didn't know about. Oh, this is, this is like for the sure. director's cut coming your way. People are just, you know, we're all excited for it. Jeff, you got anything coming down the line? Any uh, podcast? Any events going on? Anything you want to plug or get out there? Yeah, I'll just I'll just plug the the recent show that I was on with uh, the uh, commemorative Air Forces uh, Warbird Tube. Um, they've got kind of a weekly podcast like what we do here, and um, was not really aware that 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 was around until about a month ago doing the air show here. Met the director of of the uh, uh, marketing for the CAF, she came out to the air show and just talked with her and, and, you know, handed her a business card. Cause of course I'm kind of like running around like crazy. It's the air sure. show day, right? I'm in between the air, the ground acts and everything else, you know, juggling. And, um, so it's a shame to get to talk to her a whole lot, but 
um, yeah, just a few weeks ago, she sent me an email and said, love to have you on the show. And it was great because I kind of got to tell a uh, chronology of kind of my, my story and how World War II for me started at a young age and the opportunities I've had, my service, you know, in the Army and then afterward and where the all those kind of those dominoes have been falling. Uh, leading here and and really you know talking about how just how fortunate I am to hang out with you guys all the time right you know talk Don of course talked about meeting you and working together on the set that that day together and the content you got that night after the rap party or kind of during the rap party for the film and yeah. then kind of was coming. the rap party because that was yeah. the only part I mean there was a there was a period of time where we had like seven people <laughs> in that room like all talking in the background and like making references to us. That was such a fun, fun, fun time. Yeah, I uh, I would love to go back and listen to those episodes. I uh, next month I'm going to be seeing, uh, you know, RJ and Chelsea again, staying at their beach house for Memorial Day weekend. So we may reminisce. And if any of our listeners want to go back and hear kind of a very, it's the first time I've ever been asked as it to be a guest on a podcast. So didn't know what the heck I was doing. Uh, still don't, but uh, just do a little more regular. <laughs> <laughs> but just fun reminiscing those old times because that's when Don and I met and, and became friends and, you know, led to this. And, of course, Henry goes from being a guest to, to a co-host, you know, just like me. And and here we are. And one thing that the uh, the Warbird Tube episode talked about was, uh, you know, of course, the the host of the show talked about he went back and listened to a few of our episodes. And he said, man, you three guys are are, are just, you know, just a great combination uh, and make such a great show because we we have very unique uh, perspectives on the war. All three of us have kind of a, a unique tie and interest and uh, perspective and things that we're kind of really, you know, we know more about this than the other two. And, and, and so we're just kind of a great combination, you know, the three. So uh, it was nice to hear that from from him and, and to, to be able to just talk to a wider audience about what we do and what we love. It definitely, I think if you go back, like if you've been a long time listener of this show from when it was just me and then guests and then me and Jeff and guests and then what it is now, I think, I think it's fair to say we all agree. It definitely took three cogs to get this clock running on time. I think with all three of us, I mean, it's just the show is running tip top. We are a well-oiled machine and, and I love where the show is at right now and, and I can't wait to see where it goes in the future with uh, the support of our, our, our fans and our audience and, and the guests who come on and obviously the content that you guys bring and the show ideas and things are just going to get better and better. But I definitely think we're definitely a three cog clock and we need all three of us. Amen. But um, that's pretty much going to wrap it up, I think, for this episode. I think we pretty much covered everything we wanted to cover. Um, if you haven't done so, please go to um, YouTube and look for Digital 410 Media or Digital 410. Um, you can find us through, just go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. You can find a link there and uh, join in the conversation. You know, sadly, I didn't get to keep up. Gabe and Dennis are on here talking. Um, Gabe did say he's still reading uh, the he's still reading Upmost Savagery, The Three Days of Tarawa. I know um, Great book. Henry read that book. And, yes. And I want to get that as well. My son is named after That's, Joseph Alexander. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that is, that's the second book I read about Tarawa. First one being Bob Sherrod's, but yes, that yeah. is, that's one of the best ones. I do have a final thought to just kind of wrap up, uh, the, our do little raid talk tonight. Um, we didn't go real in depth, but you know, I think we did a pretty good tribute to it. And, and I've got a quote here from, 
uh, from Lieutenant Dick Cole, who, uh, you know, again, the last surviving uh, Raider. He says that I hope that future generations remember that we were just a member of a big force that finally got rid of the Axis. And we did it by everybody doing something, contributing, and people come up to thank me. We are grateful that we had the opportunity to serve. What an incredible quote. And then on that note, we're going to wrap it up, and we will talk to everybody next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 